0: And so this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I know this may be a little different, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Uh, If you would stand for the reading of scripture, Uh, I believe God's word is powerful. And so to posture ourselves ready to receive it is deeply meaningful and positions us to have what God has for us. And so I'm going to read two small sections out of John chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse one through seven, and then we're going to move to verse 38 through 44. And it says this in John 11, chapter one. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Moving to verse 38, the end of the account. It says, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you will believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There's, a, there's this statement that he had to say, Lazarus, otherwise everybody in the cemetery would have started coming out. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, and a cloth around his face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this moment my prayer is that we would hear your words, not mine, your spirit in our hearts, in our lives. And that this would be a moment very similar to Lazarus in this account, that we could come to you with all that is broken and hurting and needs healing and see that you are the savior that we have longed for and the Lord that we need. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, amen. Hey, uh, while you're still standing, oh man, I gotta be quick on some of you. I love the whole thing that happened earlier with communion. We're like, are we standing? Are we sitting? Some of us are sitting, and then you never want to be the last one standing. You felt that way in church. You're like, I just, I just I'm happy with church. I just don't want to be the last one standing while everyone's standing. Hey, uh, I need you to know this, okay? Uh, I am, I am like, I'm looking for response today, okay? This is not a lecture. This is a sermon. This is something we do together. At times, I'm gonna ask you to talk to the people around you. It's okay, they're not gonna bite you, okay? Just so you know, right? They're not gonna bite you. (laughs) Change your seat now if you're concerned, just so you know. Hey, this is what I'm gonna ask you to do. The title of the message for today is When You're Not There Yet. Would you turn to three people around you and say, you're not there yet? And then you can have a seat once you've fulfilled that. Once you have met your quota, you can sit down. I don't want you to be the last one standing and not know. Let's be honest, for some of you, that felt good, didn't it? Like you've been longing to tell your spouse there, they're getting a little bit too big of a head. To be like, you're not there yet, (laughs) just so you know. Uh, This passage is fascinating for a number of reasons, things we don't have time to get into today. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite spots of the passage is Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. Because they're like, this, this will be done for God's glory. And the disciples are like, dude, like they just tried to kill you in Judea. If you go back to Judea, they're going to kill you. And Jesus goes, no, 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 we're going back to Judea. And then Thomas speaks up and he goes, let's go back to Judea and die with Jesus. Oh, the faith of Thomas. He's like, no, 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 we're, we're all going to die together. I love it. Um, one of the things that is very intriguing to me is a chapter later in Chapter 12. It gives us this little account as to the disturbance that this created. It says, "Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him many of the Jews were going over to see, to Jesus and believing in him. Isn't that rough for Lazarus? We want to kill you. Why? Because you were dead." And now you're alive. We feel like you should die because you were dead. Death penalty. And it is this, uh, this striking statement that we don't do well with resurrection. Can we just acknowledge that? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, okay? The, the whole resurrection thing still makes me uncomfortable. Uh, we, we don't do great with dead people who have come alive. We don't do great with transformed people being resurrected finding jesus in a radical way in their lives are being completely different can we just acknowledge that is that okay for us to say like i'm a i'm a i'm a fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me there you go fool me twice shame on me and then you're like but i found jesus and i'm like that's what they all say (laughs) like right (laughs) like that sure sure you did it is like, it's a, it's a little uncomfortable to just see that transformation. Westchester, I know you're honest. I know you're an honest church. You're willing to go, yeah, we're, we're a little bit suspicious when those kind of things go on. It's, it's a little hard. And, and I think it is important that we're able to approach this account with that understanding. Because uh, the way John writes it, he leads us to something that is incredibly important that actually has nothing to do really with Lazarus. Uh, John is John is a gifted writer. We we believe that scripture is inspired by God that was inspired by the Holy Spirit and yet people still had to pick up the pen and write it because you can trust God all day long and if you don't do anything, nothing's gonna happen. Can someone say amen to that? There you go, there you go, I know you're on that. You're like, we're a little suspicious of resurrection. You're like, I'm not willing to say that, but I'm like, you gotta do something. Yep, we're in on that, we're good to go. And so John, in his writing, he does unique things. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He wants to lead us down different paths. As he writes different accounts, he gives us seemingly unnecessary details to draw our attention to something that isn't right there on the surface. Because in this account, more than Lazarus was resurrected that day. And we get a little clue early on in the introduction. In John chapter 11, it says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. We, we know Martha and Mary are sisters. We we see them first when Jesus goes to their house and it says that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And Martha is busy making, cooking, setting the table, doing all those other things. And Martha comes in and she's a little upset. She's like, teacher, Mary is just sitting here doing nothing. Why aren't you making her get up and work with me? And I got to tell you, I got a soft spot for Martha. Cause I got a whole lot of Martha in me. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Let's worship God. But we also need to like set up chairs and move tables and get this stuff done. Like, that's great that you're worshiping Jesus, but somebody's got to cook the meal. Like I can't cook. I'm grateful for the people who can cook. Someone say amen to that. Come on. Like I'm grateful for those people. And so like, I feel her pain, but Martha is the older sister. Mary is the younger sister, and then here it says Mary and her sister Martha. He is drawing our attention to Mary because he puts her name out of order. Then he says this, this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is a scene that happens simply one chapter later in John chapter 12 when Jesus is sitting and eating, and Mary comes in, and, and she takes a bottle of perfume, and it was custom in that day to wash someone's feet when they walked into their house, okay? Because they've been walking around in sandals, and it's gross and nasty and dirty. Just just picture someone wearing Crocs all summer. Like, that's kind of what it looks like. No offense if you wear Crocs. Total offense if you wear Crocs all the time, just so you know. It's like, is gross, and it's icky. And instead of washing his feet with, Water, she pours perfume, and it's almost like this disturbing, uncomfortable image. She takes her hair and she uses it to wipe Jesus' feet. And so John wants us to know: no, 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 you need to you need to pay attention to Mary. Mary is important here. And it finishes: So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the first time that we encounter Mary is when she is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's prepping the meal, getting stuff together. Come on, who, who are the Marthas? Men, women, who are the Marthas? The world wouldn't get anything done if there weren't Marthas in the room. Come on, be proud. Who are the Marthas in there? Like, that's right, we get stuff done. We put them in, we get it. Out of there. There's no church potluck without the Marthas in the world. I, I feel you, I'm grateful for you. And, and so we see Mary is there and Jesus says, no, no, no. She's sitting at my feet. I will not take this from her. She has chosen what is better. She's sitting at Jesus' feet because he is her teacher. And then in John chapter 12, she is not sitting at his feet as a teacher. She is bent over, wiping his feet with her hair. Like, this this is the difference. Like, she has moved from learner to worshiper. The first time we encounter Mary, Jesus is her teacher. In John chapter 12, he is her savior. This, this shift matters. This is the distinction between I am curious about Jesus and I like the church and I like the people To I cling to God. Like I need him. Like this makes it, when when we talk about Mary as worshiper, I I don't don't just mean like she gets together on a Sunday morning and she sings and she kind of sings and she just doesn't just like move her lips pretending like she's singing, like she really sings. Like, like, and some of you may have this picture like, oh, worshiper, you mean like she like raised a hand. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe a little bit. This is like, this is the kind of life that wakes up in the morning grateful to God for what he's given to you. This is the kind of life that when difficulties come your way, you still cling to God. Like this is who Mary is becoming. And yet we find her in John chapter 11, not approaching Jesus's teacher and not yet approaching Jesus's worshiper. She's somewhere in between. We find that Jesus is coming in on the road, Lazarus is in the tomb, Martha rushes out and meets him on the road, and Mary is in the house, grieving, upset. Could could we color this correctly? She's a little mad, because Jesus didn't come. Because she knows if Jesus came, her brother could still be alive. But now he's dead, and it's done, and she's... A little angry with Jesus, the teacher. She's surrounded by people who are grieving with her because you will always have people who surround you to tell you you are perfectly fine where you are. Oh, this is hard. Okay, can I just acknowledge this? Your life will easily become filled with excuses for why you get stuck in your present circumstance and you will be surrounded by people who tell you it's fine. Stay. Be mad at them. They are wrong. She does always do that. Uh, one of the worst mistakes my wife and I ever made is we surrounded ourselves with people who had unhealthy marriages the first couple years of our marriage. It's not a great thing. Could I, could I just encourage you in that? Like, if there's a newlywed couple in your midst, don't refer, refer to your wife as a ball and chain. It doesn't set a good tone for everyone else. It's not, and it's so easy in those moments to become surrounded by people who will affirm your stuckness, who will encourage you to stay where you are. And more than Lazarus has been lost in this moment. In John chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and Her sister and Lazarus. He doesn't even name her because Mary is not herself. She has lost who she is. She is so consumed with grief and frustration that he doesn't even in this moment identify her as Mary. She is just who is related to Martha and Lazarus. She's not where she was, she's not where she will be, she's not there yet. And so today I want to have this discussion. How do we become? Because we are always becoming. Can we acknowledge that? We are always becoming. Hopefully. Hopefully, you're not there yet. And it strikes me uh, sometimes I'll do marriage counseling when the couple is really, really desperate and just has nowhere else to go. And, and some of, one of the most common things I'll hear is people say, they changed. And I was like, good. I hope. Like, I hope my wife says that. I hope she goes, yeah, he's not the same person he was as a teenager. Like, I hope we become. And this becomes one of the most important questions that we can wrestle with. How do you become? Because you should be becoming as a person. You should be becoming as a family. As a church. Like, I want to tell you, Westchester, you are different than when I was 18, (laughs) And that is a good thing. And the question is not, who are you as a church? It is, who are you becoming? Because you should be moving forward. You should be making this transition constantly from from teacher to worshiper, from from one who sits at Jesus' feet to one who acknowledges him as the savior of your life. And so then this becomes the question, how do we become? So the other day I was having a conversation uh, with one of my children and there was a caterpillar on the ground and they said, will this caterpillar become a butterfly? And I said, yes, right? we not, hopefully this wasn't if this was brand new information to you you're probably not going to hear the rest of the sermon you're like say what what happens they become a, okay so I said, yes the caterpillar becomes a butterfly and they were asking all these questions about it and so I googled it because I wanted to show them some more information and I realized that my answer was actually kind of inaccurate that the caterpillar does not become a butterfly I, I know some of you are like what Lies. What, what are you saying? No, this is actually what happened. From, from the substance of the caterpillar, the butterfly emerges. But this is what I realized as I was reading through Google with my six-year-old daughter who's really sweet, is the caterpillar dies. Like, it dies. Like, it's not, it's not like this caterpillar then becomes a butterfly. It's like, this caterpillar is dead. And from that substance, an entirely different thing emerges, being a butterfly. That was a little bit of a hard reality for her to grasp. She was like, This is gonna become a butterfly? No, it's gonna die. And then a more beautiful thing will come out of it, but his days are numbered. I'm sorry. Night, honey. Have a good sleep. So we'll say it like this the seed becomes a tree. Kind of inaccurate. The seed goes into the ground and dies and from that death the giving up of itself the the possibility happens the elements emerge in order for a tree to emerge but the thing has to be lost in order for something new to come in there is no resurrection without crucifixion there is no transformation without a letting go So so often the only prayer I pray to God is, gimme, 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 do this, do this, do this, do this, and yet God so often needs me to let go, to release, in order for the transformation to begin, in order for the resurrection to happen. So a a couple of years ago, uh, I started this work of uh, writing a book, uh, not because I felt qualified to do it, because I felt it was needed. And I kept watching person after person that I cared about lose their faith. And they would describe it in this kind of language. I, I don't know, at some point in time, I just didn't believe. And, and I'd, I'd to their history and their stories and I sat down with person after person because I wanted to understand this. And, and I began to realize, first off, that there was a predictable series of events that led to this. But I realized second off is that at the exact moment that they were giving up on their faith was very similar to where Mary was in John chapter 11 inside the house full of grief, frustrated and angry and upset. And that they were throwing in the towel just a moment too soon. And if they would have held on a little bit longer, they could have gone through this process of becoming, that they had approached Jesus as teacher, not as savior, and because he didn't do what they wanted him to do, they couldn't continue because they didn't re- know him as Lord yet. And, and the reason why I wrote this is because in many ways, this is my own story. I, uh, I without realizing it, Lost significant parts of my faith throughout my life. And I know how. And I say this not to blame anyone, okay? But uh, I have served under three different pastors uh, as a staff member at a church. Um, None of them here, just to be clear. Just uh, like, (gasps) no, none of them here. Uh, But all three of them uh, left the ministry because of moral failure. And I know it's really easy, and I want to be really sensitive with this to throw fuel on that fire and for people to lie, all oh, people are bad, all oh, this is bad. And I have no interest in having that conversation today. Uh, people aren't perfect, church people aren't perfect. Be grateful for that. If there were no sinners allowed, you would have been escorted out, and so would I when it came to begin with, okay? And, and sometimes, like, surviving in a church is hard. I believe so often as a church, we equip people to survive in culture and maintain our faith in culture, and we need to also be equipped on how to survive in church. Because can we just acknowledge this? Being a part of a church for a long period of time is hard, right? Now now you're just lying. You're looking at me and you're like, no, Kevin, I have no idea. Because like the people you're gathered in worship with, they don't all think like you, act like you, vote like you. Oh yeah, I'll touch that because I'm a guest speaker. I don't care, I'm going back to Dayton next week. I'm going back to Dayton later today. And sometimes it's a little difficult to be worshiping next to someone that like you know what they posted the other day and you wanted to leave the angry face reaction on it and then they're raising their hands in worship and you're like, you really need to meet Jesus in this moment on this. Like it is hard to be a part of a church. And so person after person that I trusted that preached a gospel of transformation and resurrection fell. Didn't follow. The, the, the power of God that they proclaimed was not active in their life and was not working. And, and, and person after person that I trusted their character and I put my faith in. Oh, that's important. Let me down. Did not live up to the standards that they had set for me or themselves. And, and what slowly started happening is I adopted a theology that said this. If you follow Jesus and you do what he says, your life will be better and you get to go to heaven, which I believe still to this day. But I had no category for resurrection. I had no category for transformation. And so regularly when I get up in front of my church to teach or preach, I'd teach the principles of God and the truths of God and the beliefs of God. And it was, if you do this, then your life will be better. And I had no room to go. God takes broken, hurting, sinful people, fills their hearts, transforms their lives, takes dead men and makes them alive takes apathetic husbands and re-engages them, takes mothers who have been hurt and wounded and filled with grief and restores their joy yet again. I had no category for that in my life. And it was predictable. I, I got the opportunity often when we were a part of a church plan to go into the schools and teach. And so they would bring me in often as a guest speaker, and it was this beautiful thing. I would just pull the Bible verse out of my message from Sunday and give the same talk, because Jesus didn't really need to be there in order for you to live out that talk. And slowly, I had lost pieces of my faith. Jesus was my teacher, and I wanted to know what he had to say, and I would do it. But he wasn't really savior. Because I had no need for a savior. Because I, in general, did the things I was supposed to do. I, in general, lived the life that I was called to. And so my life was pretty good. And then some things started happening. I started watching after person after person who I encountered had come to a, not just a saving faith, but a transformative faith in their life. Uh, a, a man who had been, had an affair on his wife become completely transformed, to, served in the church regularly. We gave him an office in our church. We're like, well, if you're going to serve that much, we might as well get you an office here. He tried to put a bed in there. We, we drew the line there. We're like, no, 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 you do need to, but like, just, just give him his life radically to God. Uh, a man who was a wicked priest come to faith and be baptized I I, I, I watched another man who had lost his father and his son on the same day, given up faith two decades ago, come to the realization that God was still working in his life and had never let him go. I watched person after person. And here's the thing, like as the pastor, you kind of got to do the thing. Like when someone testifies to the grace of God and then they hand you the microphone, you can't really get up there and be like, yeah, let's see. (laughs) Oh, come on, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can't get up there and be like, all right, let's see how you have to go. Praise God, this is amazing. And then I'm sitting back there and I'm thinking, how did this happen? Like, this is unreal. A a, a guy gave a testimony in our church the other week that he had had an aneurysm, was in it. Coma and throughout this coma that God had worked in his life, he came to meet Jesus while he was in the coma, and that now he had given his life to Christ and he's completely different. And then I, I do have to share this. He's he's comfortable if he ever watches this with me saying this. He's in the thing he said, My friend said God didn't put Donnie in a coma, he put him in a cocoon, and a butterfly emerged. And I was like, that's kind of beautiful, but that's really cheesy at the same time. Who say that? Like, put him in a cocoon and he all right, the caterpillar died. Yeah, I get it. You're good. I'm with you. I didn't have a category for this. And yet God kept doing it. And as I watched it over and over again, there was a part of me that I had to let go of. There was a part of me that said, no, 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 no. Jesus does more than give you principles. Jesus more does more than give you helpful tips. Jesus still takes... Dead men and women, hurting men and women, riddled with guilt men and women, and transforms them and makes them alive again. See, I I have this belief that in the same way that the religious leaders were uncomfortable with Lazarus, that as churches today, we still get uncomfortable with Lazarus. We still get a little suspicious and a little concerned when people proclaim, I met the Savior of the world and I'm different because of it. But that is the only thing that we cling to. That is the only thing as churches that matters more than anything else. We talk so often of the cross. And I want to tell you how important the cross is because with no cross, your sins are not forgiven. But even more important than the cross is the empty grave. The empty tomb is even more important because through the empty tomb, we see that we can have life that we've been called to. We were not meant to just sit in our guilt and our frustration and our shame. We are meant to have the very life that Jesus led us into. Oh, come on, church. This is where we celebrate. This is what we believe in. This is what we get excited about. And so, this is what we find. We see this important encounter. It says in John chapter 11, verse 28. It says, after she, being Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. So, so Lazarus is in the tomb. Mary's in the house. Jesus is coming down the road. Martha comes to meet her. And at some point in time, we don't have this recorded, but we know this interaction takes place. Jesus said, where is Mary? Maybe he just knew. Martha tells him, Mary's still in the house. She is mad at you. Oh, I wouldn't go in there right now. Like She is, she is not happy with what you've done. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, you tell Mary to come here. You, you tell Mary to get out of the house and to meet me here. What One of the greatest lies that we are told, and I understand why we are told this, because it's comfortable, is that God always meets you where you are. He doesn't, he doesn't always meet you where you are, because if he meets you always sitting in your grief, you will stay in your grief. If he meets you sitting in your shame, you will stay in your shame. If he meets you in your sense of I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and I am sufficient and can accomplish anything I want without the power of God in my life, you will stay there. And God wants to move you from seeing him as teacher to a worshiper. God wants to move you from sitting and listening to who he is to clinging to him and acknowledging that he is the very life that you need. And while people will always come around you and surround you and tell, you. It's fine that you believe that way. My own account of losing my faith was well reasoned. I had great excuses for why I didn't believe that God transformed lives. And there were people who came around me who said, you're right. You should feel that way. That is okay. I felt that way before. But if I would have stayed there, I would have never fully met the God who redeems and restores. And so Jesus looks at Martha and he says, you tell Mary to come here. She has stayed in that house long enough. She has stayed stuck back there long enough. You tell her to get up and come out because I'm about to do something in this moment that she cannot miss. <clears throat> Westchester, I want, I want to ask you this. Are you stuck in the house? Are you surrounded by excuses? Have you filled your life with comfortable emotions that that secures you and makes you feel safe and makes your life feel predictable and makes it feel controlled. And if you are, you probably have not met, aren't with the Jesus who resurrects. I am amazed at the resurrection of Lazarus, but I'm going to be more honest with you. I am even more amazed at the transformation of Mary because I have seen so many people in my life who have gotten stuck in the house and they tell themselves how God let them down. I want to tell you this, God didn't let me down. The church let me down. The church didn't even let me down. Like six people let me down and oh how quickly six people let me down can become. The church failed me. God failed me. No. I put my faith in the wrong things. And I had to go through that process of losing in order to claim what I should cling to. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes these incredible words. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And oh, how many times in my life I've wanted to add it, uh, adapt and edit that verse. I have been kind of God through hard times with Jesus. And this part of my life no longer lives, but this part still lives. Yeah, I'm going to let go of this, but I'm going to cling to all these other things and I'll be good. The, the only way that Christ lives in you is if the previous you no longer lives. And so there is a willful act of letting go, a deliberate pushing aside that says, Jesus, I'm not gonna hold to my self-sufficiency. I'm not gonna take pride in my achievements. I'm not going to comfort myself with excuses. I'm not even gonna surround myself with people who say, it's fine, you should feel that way. I'm gonna to come to you and trust you. I'm gonna believe in you and say, God, restore my joy, restore my freedom, remove my guilt. See, God, God still brings dead people back to life and I had to see it to believe it. But once you've seen it enough times, you have to go, you really are the savior of the world. Westchester, would you stand with me in this moment? Band is going to come. In just a second, we're going to close out. All of this has been worship, but worshiped through a song. And here is my testimony today. The everlasting Father, the Almighty God, His arm has not grown weak and weary. He has not become disinterested with the status and plight of his people. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. He cares for your soul more than you could possibly imagine. And if you do not have the joy that you thought you would, if you do not have the freedom that you were promised, there is still stuff that you're holding to that you must let go of. And today, I wanna invite you to do that. Heavenly Father, in this moment, we gather together before you. Not a people proud of who we are and what we've done, but a people whose only testimony is Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the great redeemer, the savior, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the wonderful counselor, and the one who still resurrects, who still transforms. And so Heavenly Father, in this moment, I ask that we would be open to letting go of what we have wrongfully clinged to, that we would see clearly the excuses that we have made for why we're stuck inside the house, but we would choose, we would choose, to get up and to go where you are so that we can see who you truly are. Heavenly Father, make us worshipers, not just learners. Make us those who are desperate for you and not those who are interested in your teaching. I believe you still do this. I trust that you still do this today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.